Good morning. I, uh, I'm excited for this class. It's, um, it's something that's been on my heart for a while, and I want to begin uh, first apologizing for starting a little bit late. Uh, I, oops, sorry, let me fix that real quick. Get my personal audio going here. So I want to I apologize for starting a little bit late. I've got a uh, one-and-a-half-year-old with me, which is kind of a first to have a, uh, a toddler with me at Pepperdine. And uh, so my wife and I are trying to block and tackle for each other as best as we can. And I want to begin this, uh, this class, Jesus on Every Page, Redefining Biblical Literacy for Millennials and the rest of us, with a little uh, quick kind of illustration. My, my son, his name is Finn, and he's kind of at this age where he's moving all the time. Now he's walking and running a lot, but there was a time uh, just a few months ago where he was crawling all the time. And so we weren't, we weren't really uh, distracted or concerned if he was moving because that was normal. We were concerned if he was still. And here's kind of video proof of concept. So with my son, you could put him on the ground and he would start crawling to you. You could do that on wooden floors and he would crawl to you. You could put him on the carpet and he'd crawl to you. You could take him outside and he would crawl to you. You could put him in the kitchen tile and he'd crawl to you. But one time I put him on grass. <laughs> and he had no idea what to do. This poor kid was grabbing at the blades and really just confused, total city kid who doesn't know what to do with this grass that he's sitting on. Finally, at long last, my wife came over, and this was that several minutes have gone by, and finally she had to kind of beckon him, and he would lean forward, and he began to crawl in the grass. Now, I, I show you this because, number one, it is objectively adorable. <laughs> and number two, because I think it's a good picture of what happens when we start talking about different ways to read the Bible. So I recognize that I'm going to be talking to uh, most of us who are, we're used to crawling on the wooden floor, we're used to the carpet, we're used to the tile, and there's a certain way that we have read scripture for years and years and years, and we passed it on generation to generation, and what I'm going to be talking about today may have some moments where you feel like you're sitting on the grass. And it may be a little bit uncomfortable. It may be a little bit like, I don't, man, I feel, I don't know if that's the, if that's the thing. And so, so I just want to say that first and foremost. This, this talk and this, this class was, was prompted by three things. College Taylor, a conversation I had, and a conversation that Jesus had. So let me begin with uh, the conversation that I had. This was about six years ago. I was a worship leader, and, uh, and that summer our church was going through the book of Esther. That was our sermon series. And so as we're going through that, that, that uh, series in the book of Esther, one weekend I, I'm talking to some friends. They are young professionals. Like categorically, they are millennials. They're from that generation. And we start talking and just catching up after service. And the conversation turned to the day's message. And one of them said something that I'll never forget. It's just hard to see how this relates to my life today. Now, let me be really clear. That normally doesn't surprise me at all. Like, I, I anticipate that as, as a minister and as a pastor, that uh, we're increasingly rubbing shoulders with people who would be considered biblically illiterate. Like, they have a very, very kind of shallow, introductory understanding of Scripture. So that statement on its own would not surprise me from a millennial. What surprised me was the millennial that it came from. Uh, and we'll, we'll, call her, um, we'll call her Jane. 
But, but Jane had been raised in the church. Jane's dad was an elder, and Jane's mom was on the leadership committee for the youth group. Uh, Jane herself had been part of the student leadership group in the youth group. Jane had been raised in hours and hours and hours of Sunday school, and Jane had grown up around and would have been a poster child for church attendance and involvement and engagement. And here Jane is, and she's mid-20s, and she's telling me that she can't, she can't see this connection between the book of Esther and her life. And this, this just so bothered me because I, I, I walked away from that really confused because I would say that, that Jane and I would be incredibly similar in our trajectory through church, that we were not foreigners to church. We had grown up in it. We had been at every single type of service. We had been involved. And so to hear this from her made me ask, what have we been doing? What has been happening that some, some are getting to a place of adulthood and despite the wealth of scripture uh, knowledge that they would have and verses that they memorized that they would not feel it has a connection to their life today. So that was the conversation I had. Now I want to move to the conversation that Jesus had. Uh, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. This is post-resurrection, uh, but the resurrection of Jesus is not yet known by, by all. Uh, this is going to be a familiar scene to some of you, and some of you already kind of see the move that I'm going to make, and that's okay, because we'll make a few more moves that you may not see coming. So on, on, the, on a road to a place called Emmaus, there are two disciples who are walking, and they're basically, they're leaving. Uh, some have said, you know, they're, they're physically leaving Jerusalem and heading towards Emmaus is like them leaving the faith they thought they had. And they're, they're leaving and turning away because they, they're, they're sad because as far as they're concerned, Jesus was crucified, he's been buried, he's gone. Uh, but Jesus uh, kind of appears on the road, starts walking alongside them. They do not recognize him and they start striking up a conversation. And I'm going to begin in verse 18 right after Jesus says, hey, what, what, what are you talking about? Well, these two disciples say, are, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of, of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now they roll through their story, and Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Luke is long-winded with their, their conversation, but he is short-winded with what happens next. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if there was one 
Bible study that I wish I could have been a part of. If there was one moment in the Bible where I wish I could have been a fly on the wall, among the many miracles and incredible things, I wish I knew how to read the Bible the way Jesus reads the Bible. That he's able to walk through scripture, and at that point scripture is only the Old Testament, and begin to talk about how scripture points to him. So that's the conversation that Jesus had. And I, I, now I want to kind of move to that third, that third inspiration for why I want to talk about this. And, and this was college, college Taylor. Um, so in, in college, I, uh, I went to Oklahoma Christian University. And, uh, and, and so I've been raised as a preacher's kid. I've been raised in church and in many ways kind of felt like I had my own faith. But, um, but one of the things that I, I began to learn and began to see um, in reflection on my college years is that there was a particular way that I began to read the Bible um, on my own. And it really was caught from when I was growing up. I read the Bible and my default was to look for myself in the text. I wanted to apply what I was learning to myself. So let's just begin and say, this came from an earnest desire. What I had been taught was that looking into God's word, we would see how we were to live and, and what kind of a faith we were supposed to have. And faith, man, you know, if you, for me, I, I, the, the book of James is hammered into my head in terms of faith and deeds. So automatically, faith was represented by deeds. So I was always looking for what to do. What does this mean for me? What should I be doing? And I first sought ways that I could learn about myself. Now, I remember in college uh, learning about this instinct in a class on film theory. So here's something that, that's, that's interesting uh, that I learned in this class. For the longest time, the popular form of entertainment was live theater. Now, in, in live theater, there are people in front of you who are portraying characters and living something out. And, uh, and so you are watching someone else live this out in front of you. And so here's, here's why this is significant. A live theater goer does not leave the theater thinking they were the hero. Well, they leave knowing that, that, that actor, that actress, they, they were the hero. They're the star. You don't walk away from Hamilton thinking about yourself. You walk away and you think about Lin-Manuel Miranda or any of those other like, performers who are incredible and the characters that they portray. We don't and we, we have a harder time putting ourselves into the story because there are physical people in front of us who are the ones in the story. But the revolution of the film industry wasn't just that you, you'd be able to distribute stories and performances by one person to many places. It's that you didn't have physical people in front of you and suddenly viewers didn't see Pierce Brosnan as James Bond. They were James Bond. They didn't see Charlton Heston as the protagonist. They implanted themselves in the place of the protagonist. And there's this long uh, strain of academic thought that's about this instinct in viewers. That's one of those subconscious ways that film is so uh, just kind of grabs onto us differently in our hearts because we put ourselves in the place of the hero. Now, what I began to discover was that uh, in college, there, there, was, there was live theater reading of the, gospel, of, of the Bible, and there was a film reading of the Bible. And here's what I mean. When I would read the Gospels, there was this automatic buffer that kept me from seeing myself as the hero. And you know who it was? It was Jesus. 
Because Jesus is in the Gospels. And I knew enough to know, okay, I'm not the hero here. This isn't about me. This is about Jesus. So I'm going to look to Jesus and try and learn about Jesus and grow my faith in Jesus. But I, and so I read those sections of the Bible like a, like a theater goer. Because I knew who was the star. But when you'd move to the Old Testament, or when you'd move to other parts of Scripture, it was very easy, and, I, and, on, and honestly, we kind of get raised with these heroes of the faith as our moral examples or faith examples. And so suddenly we put ourselves in the shoes of David or we are Abraham or we are Esther or we are Paul at the Areopagus and we start teaching and talking and reading as if this is about us. And where Jesus is not completely obvious and physically evident, we by nature make it about us and make us the point. Here's, here's kind of a, a, a way that I've phrased it that's helpful for me. I was reading the Bible more for application than revelation. I was reading more to see what I needed to do and not as much looking to see who has God revealed himself to be. This is a dangerous reading of scripture that with the best of intentions, I think we have continued to pass down through the generations. And we have made stories, uh, especially Old Testament narratives, uh, of heroes of the faith. And we prop these up as people we can be like instead of asking how, how do they point to Jesus? How do we see Jesus in this story? How is this foreshadowing or contrasting with the person about whom all of Scripture ultimately points? And if you think that's, that's maybe overstated, um, let, me, let me, at the risk of belaboring the point. Let me read a couple of passages for you. Um, Jesus didn't just do this in Luke 24. He also does this in the fifth chapter, the Gospel of John. You're welcome to look there with me if you want. Uh, at the uh, inside the Gospel of John, there's, there's lots of this part of a longer discourse that Jesus is having with crowds and with religious leaders. Uh, but at one point, he's talking to the religious leaders, and here's what he says in John 5, starting in verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says, look, you've, these, he's talking to Old Testament scholars. He's, he's talking to people who are, who are spent more, way more time in church than me or, or my friend Jane. Like these, these are people whose job it is to pour over the scriptures. And Jesus is saying, this, this, this Old Testament, the law to the prophets, to the, 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 the chronicles of the kings and the judges, all of this is pointing to me. It's testifying about me. But you've refused to come to me. And look at what he says just a few verses later in verse 45. I think this is significant. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Okay, 
Jesus is talking to people that, man, if, 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 if they were, if they were to, to take, a, take a quiz and say, do you believe what Moses wrote? They, would, they wouldn't say somewhat agree. They wouldn't say very, they would say strongly agree, absolutely agree, 100% agree. These are people who, if, if in the middle of a synagogue service, a terrorist came in, or maybe Roman, Roman centurions came in and started persecuting the, Jew, the Jews for their faith, and they, they were said, you need to, you need to renounce what, what you believe about what Moses said. Well, they, they would have gone to the sword. They would have died because they believed it that much. But here, Jesus is saying, you think you believe, but you don't actually believe what Moses was really, ultimately, truly writing about and pointing to in everything that he wrote. So what? here's a sitting on the grass moment for us. I think that when we look at so much of Scripture, man, we think we believe. We think we get it. But then we start teaching in ways that make it about us and that moralize these stories. Now, let me be very clear. I don't think it's wrong to say, look, look at how faithful Esther was in the face of pressure. We can be that too. I don't think that's wrong, but I think it's wrong if it's the only point in the sermon. I don't, I don't think that that's a bad instinct. I think it's a terrible first instinct. If the first instinct is to say, how do I fit in here? What should we do next? How am I to respond? Then I think Deep down, we're operating much the same way that College Taylor operated. And much the same way my heart is tempted to operate over and over again. And here's, here's, here's the deep down. Deep down, when I was reading with myself most in mind, it was in part because my faith was based more on my obedience than Jesus' faithfulness. So now... By, by the grace of God and as best as I'm able to submit myself to the Holy Spirit, I aim to read with Jesus most in mind because only by fixing my eyes on his faithfulness do I grow more obedient or kind or loving or faithful or, or gain any of the attributes of those heroes of the faith. David will not transform me. Jesus will transform me. Esther is not going to, to, to help me in the long run, only Jesus can do that. So looking to these people, I think we have to be careful with the ways that we do that. And we turn them into heroes of the faith, but we don't point to our ultimate hero. Now, Jesus isn't the only one to do this in the New Testament. There's another spot. Because sometimes when I talk about this, I can anticipate there's a little bit of a pushback that's like, okay... Okay, so it's about Jesus. Like, I, I get that. And I'm usually talking to people who would say, we're on the same page, Taylor. We believe it's about Jesus. But, but the way that this gets lived out and how we teach people to read the Bible and how we teach the Bible and how we share the Bibles with, with others, often uh, we, don't, we don't make that all-important first move to ask, how do we see Jesus? How does this point to Jesus? Where does this fit in the story that aligns with Jesus? So let me show you another spot where Paul... Uh, points to the scriptures to say this points to the saving work of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15. Start, the, the chapter begins this way. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise... You have believed in vain. Now here's the gospel. What he begins to pass on. The saving work. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And he goes on from there with the other 500 witnesses. And some of whom have fallen asleep. But the, the phrase that happens twice is according to the scriptures. If you've never noticed that before, if you haven't, haven't paid attention to that before, what Paul is saying, because he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, he's saying, guess what? Christ died for our sins according to the Old Testament, according to what the Old Testament not only prophesied, but what as a whole it helps us see and point toward. And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So according to Paul, when he looks at the Old Testament, when he begins to read, what he sees is he sees a narrative, but he also sees specific texts that point to Jesus, who would die for the sins of the world and who would raise from the dead. Something about Paul in his faith completely changed when, when, he, came, when he came to faith in Christ, he began to read the Old Testament like Jesus reads the Old Testament. And from Moses to the prophets, it's all about him. Now, he goes farther than that in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, two, verse, uh, two verses into that chapter, he says, my goal, he's talking about his ministry, his striving, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, listen to this, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that hit me like a ton of bricks earlier this week because what I've begun to see in our churches, our Bible studies and discipleship programs and sermons that uh, default to finding uh, wisdom in scripture. They talk about it that way, knowledge in scripture. Like, how do, like the Bible's gonna teach us the ways to live in this world. The Bible's gonna show us how to be with wisdom and knowledge. And so many of these approaches and patterns are trying to teach little sections of wisdom or a lesson on the Proverbs or, or doing even, even looking at, at parts of the New Testament and trying to, you know, preaching or teaching Ephesians 4 through 6 about how to live as, as, as people changed by Jesus, but without preaching that we've been changed by Jesus. Here's, here's the thing that I keep seeing. People are trying to preach wisdom and knowledge without preaching Christ. But this says that in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So if it sounds like I'm doing a feedback loop and I keep pointing back to we have to be teaching Jesus, we have to be pointing to Jesus, we have to be preaching about Jesus, then you've caught on to what I'm trying to get across here. That through all of scripture, we have to look for ways to point to Jesus. And here's why. When we don't, what we end up doing is moralizing these sections of scripture. We end up giving people a new law. We end up giving them a new standard. And we end up with people like Jane who look at Esther and there's this chasm of cultural differences and time. And despite her knowledge of the Bible, uh, if she's not seeing Jesus there, she's struggling to relate it to her life. And what people are doing today is, man, if, if, if our mode is to moralize stories in the Old Testament, well, guess what? There's already stories coming out today that are easier to relate. Like Jane doesn't struggle to moralize this is us. 
when she watches This Is Us or when she watches whatever her favorite show is, we don't struggle to, to see ourselves in those things because, because they're, they're now, because they're happening here, because there's not that chasm of difference and because it's our default to look for ourselves. But if in the church what they get is just an older version of that, and the only claim is, well, this is ancient. Well, this is passed down. Like, if that's, if that's our only token, if that's our only treasure, that this is ancient wisdom, then no wonder there's a bunch of people who are living now in a world that's ever-changing and going, well, I don't, I don't know why this matters. This doesn't speak to me. And that's because we're not speaking Christ. So having, having said all of that, here's, here's a couple of... of um, kind of tools. I know I've kind of, I've kind of beat us up. I've put us on the grass. I've tried to make us as uncomfortable as possible. Uh, so let me, let me give a couple of examples uh, of, of ways that we can look for Jesus in scripture. Um, I'm going to start with an email exchange that I had with somebody from my church. Uh, his name's Chris, and Chris is one of those guys uh, who's always curious. He's always asking questions. I love that about Chris, uh, and I can never keep up with the number of emails that he sends in. But, but one, uh, one in particular, uh, a while ago, we had this exchange, and he wrote asking, uh, hey, I'm, I'm, reading in, I'm reading in 2 Kings, and uh, I keep seeing this phrase that a king did write in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, but then I'll read more about the king, and they seem to mess up. So what's happening here? And, uh, and so what, what, uh, he, he had a couple of examples, one of them being Joash. If you want to look at this real quick, um, 2 Kings 12. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll, I'll give you uh, little, uh, little bits. Uh, in 2 Kings 12, verse 2, Joash, um, who was the king, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years of Jehodiah, the priest instructed him. Uh, verse 3, the high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. So back to back, this is the contradiction he's asking about. Um, and, uh, and so Joash, Joash does a few more things. And one of the things, as I was looking at the chapter that I noted, was that the, uh, the end of his towards the end, it kind of does that thing that uh, Chronicles and Kings do. Hey, as for the other events of the reign of Joash and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Judah? His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo and the, uh, on the road down to Scylla. The, the officials who murdered him were, and this starts naming these guys, um, he died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David and his son succeeded him as king. So this is a guy who worked to repair the temple. Uh, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't um, knock out all of the idolatry, and then he was killed um, by, by some of his friends. So I'm writing back to Chris, and he's asking about this contradiction, doing right in the eyes of the Lord, but uh, not being able to fulfill everything. And I, I wrote, and I just said, uh, Chris, look at, look at Joash in chapter 12. What you see as contradiction, I see as commentary. After all, Joash is a king bringing reform, restoring the temple. But at the same time, he's only beginning the process of reform. He wasn't able or willing to take on Israel's entrenched idolatry. And no king would successfully do that until Jesus. The text makes something clear. Even the best kings can't fix everything. That doesn't mean he was an evil or willfully disobedient king. It just means that his best efforts to obey God and represent God's reign fell short even though he tried and pursued obedience in a way that honored God. And in the end, he's assassinated by his own officials. So think about this. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Joash tried to be. 
Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the reformer who both tears down and rebuilds the true temple. Though his own followers betray him, Jesus is not defeated in death, but victorious. Jesus doesn't need instruction from a priest, but he is the ultimate high priest instructing all. Jesus is the only one able to tear down all the high places and end all sacrifices. And Jesus is the only one who truly does right in the eyes of the Lord and generously bestows that title on all his followers who have not earned it. Hope you have a good week. So here, my aim was to say, okay, Chris, I see what you're wrestling with. I see what you're trying to figure out. And I think deep down, one of Chris's questions is, okay, if this guy did what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but he didn't live up to it, does that mean even though I have some failings, I'm doing right in the eyes of the Lord? Do I get that title? Do, 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 does that count for me too? If this guy gets kind of a, a graded on a curve, will that happen for me too? And my goal, obviously, was to point him to, well, how do we see Jesus here? And so let me, let me, let me talk through a couple. Some of these moves are familiar to you guys, but I still want to just kind of lay some of these out in terms of questions to ask of a text. So if you're a note taker, this, this is where we're going to get real practical for a second. Uh, the first and question you've kind of heard me say a couple of different times, but the first is to ask, how does this point to Jesus? And sometimes it's, it's really simple and it can be really obvious. Um, I... Uh, you know, if you're, if you're preaching on Elijah or if you're helping to teach or if you're sharing uh, or reading Elijah on Mount Carmel, all right, well, you've got two different competing, uh, competing worshipers, uh, worship groups and two sacrifices being offered and one of them, uh, in, in, in one of them, there's a God who doesn't do anything and the sacrifice is for nothing and the other, the sacrifice is consumed. So uh, it's pretty easy to look at that and go, well, how does, this, how does this show us Jesus? Well, Jesus is the sacrifice that was acceptable to God. Jesus is the sacrifice where God showed up. The inversion that I think is cool is, man, in, in you know, compare Carmel to Calvary. On Mount Carmel, God consumes the sacrifice. On Calvary, Jesus became the sacrifice. Uh, and so I think there's, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of comparison that you can do. So sometimes they're more obvious. Other times, uh, here's a different question to ask. Is there a problem here that is only ultimately resolved through Jesus? Are we seeing some type of continual stumbling block for humans? Uh, and, or are we seeing some type of systemic evil? In Joash, we have idolatry. And okay, so Jesus is the one who's going to uh, defeat and help people turn from useless idols. It's interesting that that's what uh, Paul writes about the Thessalonian church uh, when he's kind of summing up their journey. Uh, and, and he does the same thing on the uh, Areopagus when he begins to preach about the unknown God. Another question to ask, is there a victory that is, uh, that's partial but fully fulfilled in Jesus? Um, another, another question to ask, uh, how might the hero or protagonist foreshadow Jesus. Another question to ask, is there rescue of any kind and how is it like our salvation through Jesus? Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of different places to look and uh, if you're, you know, you're preaching through, through the judges and you begin to see things that the judges are willing to do and, uh, and, and, and go, okay, how do we take what they were willing to do and subvert that or, or point to, well, really, this is fulfilled in Jesus. So, so kindly 
the, the Lord instructs Gideon to tell his own army. You're going to say, for the Lord and for Gideon, and there's going to be victory. Well, you know, when I think about that, one of the things that I think about, well, in, that, in that moment of victory, in that announcement before the battle of rescue, God willingly aligns this coward and this unworthy general uh, who's, who really does not have what it takes to make to win the battle and puts his name up alongside. Not because he's equal with God, but because God has, has kind of made him in some ways a co-heir of the victory. And so for me, I think, man, Jesus, Jesus is willing to make us co-heirs with Christ. And so he lifts, uh, he, he's, he, he basically uh, says, you know what, I'm going to do this for God's glory, but I'm going to do this for your forgiveness, for the Lord and for Gideon. Um, another question you could ask, is there anything in this passage that's part of a larger theme? Uh, if, there's, if there's a scene or, or something you're working through that deals with covenant or kingdom or presence, well, these are themes that seem to show up all through the Bible. They're threads, and uh, I believe these threads culminate in Jesus. If you want, I'm just going to throw out a resource. Uh, if you haven't read Preaching by Tim Keller, that would be a worthwhile thing to look at, even if you're not a preacher. Uh, and there is a, there's a chapter in which uh, he walks through preaching Christ in all of Scripture, uh, and that's, uh, that's a worthwhile place to kind of look at some of those themes and how they culminate. Um, another, another kind of helpful resource or thing to, to think about when you're working through these passages or working through the Old Testament in particular. Some of you, uh, how many of you have gone through Zondervan's The Story? Okay, we got a few hands up. So there's a really, this, this is a really, really simple, easy one um, that, was, that was helpful for a lot of people in our church, which is to talk about the lower story versus the upper story. Uh, the lower story being what's happening on the ground. Who, who are the players and where is this happening? And so this is in Jerusalem and this is with this kind of a king and with these kind of a people and this kind of an army. And, and you do want to understand the context. But there's an upper story that's happening, which is God's overall arcing redemption plan. Um, here's another way to think about that that I think it, it, instead of just two pieces, I think it's almost more helpful to think about it in three, which is this. The individual story the communal story, and the cosmic story. So in the individual story, you're looking at whoever that hero is, whoever that person is. Uh, and, if you're, and if you're preaching and you're, and you're talking about Samuel and this prophet, well, you're looking at somewhat at what he's going through, what his journey is in listening to God or in speaking a word of truth or confronting people. But there's also a communal story for Israel happening at the same time. Uh, and what God's trying to work through Samuel for the sake of Israel. But there's also a cosmic story, which is often the one that we totally leave out, which is going, how does all of this grab beyond one community, beyond one group, and even beyond just humanity to talk about the redemption of the world? Because Jesus says in Revelation 21, he's making all things new. Uh, and even, uh, even in Romans 8 that we heard last night from Josh, like there's this pointing to all of creation waiting for the redemption. Uh, so so I, think, I think that's another way to kind of zoom out and help people see a bigger picture. Uh, let me throw out just a couple of resources because this, uh, some of what I'm sharing is by no means my own. Um, I already mentioned that uh, the Keller, Keller work. Um, this the class title is a total ripoff from a great book by a guy named David Murray, Jesus on Every Page. Uh, and David Murray is um, a great scholar who, who really helps show not only seeing Jesus in all kinds of places throughout the Bible, but also how 
uh, God is consistent even in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, there's, uh, there's this great, great comparison he does between what Jesus did, that Jesus came, he speaks rescue, then he, he offers himself as a sacrifice and leads us into freedom before he begins uh, to, to try and teach or lead us into a certain type of behavior. So basically he remakes us before he tells us how to live as a new creation. Uh, and you see that in, uh, in the epistles as well. Well, in the, in the Old Testament, think for a minute about the Exodus. When you look at, when you look at the Exodus, uh, God comes and works through Moses. And before, before there's any kind of a law, before there's any kind of rules given, God brings freedom, brings them out of slavery, delivers them from the hands of Pharaoh and his army, leads them out, creates a covenant with them, and then you get law. So there's redemption before there's any kind of rules. Uh, this pattern of what God does is consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, another, another work that might be worth looking at for parents uh, or, or, uh, or anybody working a lot with kids, Show Them Jesus uh, by Jack Klumpenhauer. Uh, and if uh, after this class you want to actually get some of these names, um, I've got them right here on paper. Another, another one that's brand new is called Christ from Beginning to End by Trent Hunter and Stephen Wellum. Um, I want to I kind of give just a quick, uh, just in case there's anything that's happened so far that's like confusing or you got a question, I kind of want to open it up for that just for a second before, uh, before I have a closing, uh, closing thought. Any questions? Cool. No worries. The, um, the thing I want to close with uh, is just a, a, a visual way of thinking about what I've talked about. And hopefully it'll help tie some of this together. Uh, because more, more than anything else, my prayer is that we look at the Bible and we aim to first look for revelation before we seek application. That we found our faith on Jesus' faithfulness and we don't, we don't operate under gospel assumptions and then talk about gospel implications. Let me say that again. I think in our churches, the way we teach people to read the Bible and to live out as Christians, we, we often assume the gospel for them and then apply the gospel to them, which I think is super dangerous. We, like Paul and like, uh, and like Jesus, anywhere in scripture, we need to look for ways to make sure that people see Jesus, see his saving work, and that we hammer that home. Because inside the human, uh, human nature and our default is to hammer home how we have failed, how we can make it right, how can, we how can we get rid of this guilt, how can we close the gap. Like we already hammer home our need for application and we still struggle with application. But what, what we need to do as leaders in our churches, as leaders in our homes, as, as parents for our kids, as ministers to the people in our congregations, we have to hammer home again and again and again the good, and the good news of Jesus' saving work. I mean, we've been celebrating that throughout a lot of this week, but the problem is we go back and many of us lead in ministries where we don't do that again and again. And then people get tied up in measuring themselves based off the implications or applications of the gospel rather than finding their rest and hope and security in the gospel first and then living in the freedom of where Jesus has led us. So having said that, I, I want to kind of give just a, a visual sweep through scripture. That will help, uh, help kind of help, help us wrap up for the day.
So we've been talking about the Bible. And the Bible itself is not a series of disconnected stories. Yeah, it's, it's all these different books. But at its core, the Bible is a single narrative in which every story and every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There's a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There's a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There's a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There's a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There's a true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better Rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There's a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There's a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it. There's a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. There's a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, but it is a single narrative that points to one person. And everybody here, say his name with me. Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you lead us and guide us to see Jesus on every page of your word? To not only see him when he is the word made flesh, but know that every word is meant to point to him. That every problem is resolved in him. That every sin can be forgiven through him. And that every act of obedience or faithfulness is culminated and perfected in him. Make us, through your revelation, through your insight, through opening our eyes, may we see all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus. Lead us in your mercy and grace. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.